Welcome to the show, folks. It is Monday. I am David Hansen. I guess I should start off by saying that we were on vacation last week, so that's why you didn't see us up on iTunes or on YouTube uh, or on Fool.com. So we were on vacation. We're sorry we didn't announce it, but we were relaxing. That's what we were doing. This week, we are taking a little bit of a different format on where the money is. We're digging into some some of the best interviews that we've done here at The Motley Fool, and we're going to be presenting those throughout the entire week. So today's episode, we're diving into the interview that that Matt did just a couple weeks ago with Markel's Tom Gaynor. We talked about it on the show. Uh, we drove down to Richmond. We sat down with Tom Gaynor, had lunch with him, did an interview. Uh, so we are going to run this interview today. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here today with uh, CIO and President of Markel, uh, Tom Gaynor. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really exciting opportunity to get to chat with you. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Let me start out with, with a nice easy question here. I know <laughs> that you are a voracious reader. Uh, what are what are some books that that have recently uh, that, that you recently read? Well, funny you should ask. So last week I happened to, to be on vacation and it was a great treat because essentially I got to sit and read a book a day, uh, and that's a great luxury to have that much time. And one of the books that I read uh, through that course of that week was a book called Once in Golconda by John Brooks. Okay. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but recently Buffett and Bill Gates were talking about a John Brooks book called Business Adventures, mm -hmm. and yeah. just by coincidence I had, had read Once in Golconda earlier in, in that week. And it's the story of the 1920s and 1930s written uh, from the perspective of Richard Whitney, who was the president of the New York Stock Exchange at that time. Okay. Uh, and I, it's, it's a fun book. It's extraordinarily well written. Uh, there's, there's, there's thousands of books to talk about, but that one is fresh <laughs> on my mind being very recent. Sounds like a good beach read. It is that. <laughs> um, Switching gears, a circle of confidence. Mm. This is something that we hear Warren Buffett talk about so much. What would you consider that your circle of confidence is in terms of investing? Well, um, sugar, money, and dirt are the, are the three catch words that I, that I use to describe uh, my circle of confidence over the years. One is the sense that in sugar, you're talking about food, candy, chocolate, uh, alcohol, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Those are things that human beings in general like very much. Um, understandable businesses, businesses that produce cash flows that you can make sense of and you can think about sort of what they did the last five years and what they're likely to do the next five years. That makes a lot of sense to me. Sure. Money, financial intermediation, banks, brokerage firms, insurance companies, uh, financial advisory businesses, um, investment management, things that deal in the, the inventory of money okay. uh, sort of naturally resonate and, and make sense to me. So I uh, feel very comfortable operating in those worlds, dirt or real estate or businesses that you can touch and feel and have tangible assets to them. Okay. And again, the cash flows from those businesses tend to be relatively predictable compared to many others. Uh, and reasonable people can make reasonable judgments about those kinds of businesses. So that would tend to define the, the circle of confidence as I, as I would uh, d define it right now. That's also important to, to never be satisfied with anything, including okay. the, your circle of competence. So uh, one of the things you should always be doing with your circles of competence is see if you can push it a little bit more uh, okay. because the world changes and it, it keeps spinning and things don't stay the same. So you always need to be working and learning and studying to, to, to make sure that your, your circles of competence are relevant. But it's nice to have some of those like sugar where Pretty was, confident chocolate it, bar is going to do It was well. popular yesterday. <laughs> it was popular last year. It was popular 100 years ago. It'll be popular 100 years from now as well, probably as well. Sure. Now, now some people watching this may hear Tom Gaynor talking about sugar, money, and dirt and say, well, 
that should be my circle of competence because Tom Gaynor is a, is a fantastic <laughs> investor. Is, is that the right takeaway from that? No, I think that oversimplifies things. And I think uh, anybody who's watching this really should figure out what their circles of competence are. So different people have different skills and abilities. Mm -hmm. um, and if they happen to be particularly knowledgeable about medical things sure. or technological things or entertainment or, or, or anything that they have, or sports, I mean anything mm, that, yeah. that's their skill and their ability, uh, those, those should be defined by them rather than thinking that somebody else does that, so I should do that too. I mean, for instance, I, I like to play golf, and I was thinking the other day, so I was sitting there watching the, the, the British Open, um, and Rory McIlroy wins that wire to wire. Well, I think about myself when, when, uh, when I go play golf, and I think, you know, there's Rory, and he's got a golf shirt, and I've got a golf shirt, and he's got a golf glove, <laughs> and I've got a golf glove, and he's got a golf club, and I've got a golf club, and I see him swing like that, and I think I swing like that, but it turns out I don't. <laughs> So his circle of competence is very different than mine, mm -hmm. even if I try to pretend and put on the, 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 the uniform or the attributes of what his circle of competence is, my results are not going to be as good as his because we're just two different people um, and, and have two different sets of gifts. Gotcha. Now, in, in your investing, management, evaluating management <clears throat> is, a, is a big part of the process. From, a, from an outsider's uh, I should say from maybe a retail investor's perspective. Um, obviously, Tom Gaynor uh, pays, a, pays a visitor or, or calls somebody, and it, it's a different reception than um, John Smith calling them up. So for that retail investor, what's a good way to get a sense for management, their trustworthiness, their capabilities? Sure. Um, well, for instance, in the course of the last week or two, I don't remember where I read it, but there was an article that profiled Bill Marriott, mm -hmm. who I believe is roughly 82 years of age, and it was his life story and how he started out working in the, in the root beer stand, but then sort of morphed into the, the hotel business. And he was talking about sort of what Marriott is doing now with some of the, the, the newer designs. Well, um, we're Marriott investors. Mm -hmm. I, I've never spent any time with Bill Marriott. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've even had the chance to shake his hand, <laughs> although I'd very much like to do so. But we've owned that stock probably for the better part of 20 years. I'm a Marriott customer. Uh, I can see and understand what they do as a customer, as well as reading their financial statements and the annual report. So even though I don't know him, uh, I can see and taste and touch and feel the product okay. and the service. I can read the financial statements. I can read profiles about him. Mm -hmm. um, and I can get a, a, as good a sense as, as, as possible without actually having a personal relationship with him that enables to me to make some judgment about the, the company that would not be wildly different than what any retail investor would have the, the opportunity to do. Okay, and I, I would say that another, you just mentioned how long Marriott has been uh, in the portfolio, mm -hmm. and a, a key aspect to the investing at Markel is the long-term ownership, and it really, it, you know, it, it can be such a huge advantage to own, own stocks for that long. But how, how do you deal with the, we'll say the dedication, I could also maybe say the potential boredom, as I think some people might think of it as boring. How, how, what is it that allows you to own a stock for 10 years, for 20 years, and just say, I'm going to own this, I'm not going to worry about everybody else buying and selling and turning things over? Well, uh, there's a variety of factors that would go into that. First off, I never uh, buy something and say, I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, <laughs> although we've owned Marriott for for well over a decade, probably two decades, mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we will own Marriott tomorrow. 
things could change. And in fact, one of the things I like about Marriott as an example was Bill Marriott in this interview was talking about the way in which the hotel business is changing. Mm. So Airbnb, the sharing oh, yeah. economy, all those sorts of things which are opening up um, new competitors that you would have never thought of 20 years ago, mm -hmm. but that exist now. Well, the Marriott Corporation, not just Bill Marriott, but other people within that company are aware of those shifting uh, changes. So part of my job as an investor is to to monitor and stay on top of what Marriott themselves are doing mm -hmm. in response to the fact that the world is changing. So um, it's not boring yeah. because there is, there is always, uh, uh, there are developments to be kept track of uh, and things to, to stay on top of and things to make sure that your thinking is appropriate for today. Of course. Just okay. as it was 10 years ago or, or 20 years ago. And most importantly, what will be the case 10 years or 20 years from now. But there are businesses that tend to remain more relevant or, or less relevant as, as time goes by. And to the extent that you can find those that remain relevant and that have good businesses and that their uh, customer bases can expand over time and you can own them for a long time, that, that tends to be a very exciting thing to me. So some may find it boring, uh, I, I think it's wonderful. Uh, one other point I would say about that is um, we're very lucky to be alive now in the sense that the amount of progress that is, and I think will continue to happen all around the world, is faster and more dramatic right now than it has ever been before. So you take a company like Marriott as an example. Uh, how many hotel rooms will they be adding to their portfolio in the U.S. versus the rest of the world over the next 10 or 20 years? Well, just as if you were to go into a Wayback Machine and think, you know, 30 years ago when Marriott was just starting out, roughly, in, in the U.S., there were a lot of uh, potential hotel rooms in the U.S. that they could build that company mm -hmm. on the basis of. Well, now it's the rest of the world. Sure. So as affluence, it's a pretty big place. <laughs> it's a big place. I don't know of one that's bigger that we can operate. Right. In. So uh, things like that, and some some leading companies and things that you think of as very established, dominant brands. Well, that may be true, but the addressable market that they've they've worked with before mm -hmm. is much smaller than what it can potentially be over the next 10 or 20 or, or 30 years, and you have proven uh, winners uh, that you can, you can invest with and back as they go about the task uh, of trying to be successful in other parts of the world. In addition to Marriott, <coughs> CarMax, Disney, Berkshire Hathaway, among the, the long-term positions that have been in the portfolio a, a decade or more, mm -hmm. In addition, I've heard you talk about um, the tax advantages of, of holding a stock. Uh, CarMax is an example that, that you, Markel has a rather large profit on, sitting right. on. So, so this may be a little bit different for retail investors that have tax-advantaged accounts, but from a tax perspective, um, I, I know you also have some thoughts on, on, on holding on to stocks rather than selling them and turning them over. Sure. I mean, well, the math uh, for us is, I mean, we're a full corporate taxpayer, so 35% tax rate, roughly is what we would occur anytime we sold something and you recognize the gain. So if you've got a big gain in something, a dollar's worth of gain, um, in effect, if you sold that to buy something else with it, you've only got 65 cents to invest in the second idea sure. after you've sold and, and recognized the dollar gain. So it's a lot more productive for us and a better use of our time and, and limited areas under our circle of competence mm -hmm. to buy something that we think we're going to be able to hold this not just for the next 10 points, okay. but for the next 100 points or the next 500 points, uh, rather than 
but I mean, they're very compelling investment ideas where you know, a stock may be $20 a share and somebody argues a dramatically correct and compelling case as to why this is going to be 30. Uh -huh. And it works, and it goes from 20 to 30. But it's not sort of the kind of company that's going to continue to compound in value over a long period of time. So the smart thing to do if, if you're trading mm -hmm. those kinds of securities is if you're right and it goes from 20 to 30, you should sell it and recognize the gain. But then you have to figure out what you're going to do next. Right. And my bias and just um, way I spend my time is to try to buy something at 20 that I think is going to go to 30, and then 40, and then 50, and then 90, and then 150, and 300 over long periods of time. Because um, it's just a much more efficient way for me to spend my time. Looking at the big picture here, mm. we've had a very nice bull market run uh, and, uh, and valuations by some people's calculations are, are now looking a little bit loftier, 18, 19 times uh, PE ratios uh, kind of level. What is, your, what is your thought on the current state of the market and, and what we might see over the, next, over the next five years? I know speculating on the, on the market is not really your bag, but got, I, I've got to go there just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> well, you asked me about that book once in Golconda, and one of the central characters in that book was J.P. Morgan, both the original J.P. Morgan that you think of and his son, uh -huh. who subsequently ran that bank. And J.P. Morgan's famous quote when asked about the market, what it was going to do, he says, it will fluctuate. <laughs> so, it's, next a great, five, it's a great answer. It's, a great, it's an accurate answer. It was true 100 years ago. It, it's true today. Uh, similarly, I don't, so going back 100 years ago, I, if, we, if we talk about the Dow and the Dow roughly at 17,000, what was it 100 years ago? It was probably closer to 17. <laughs> and still I don't know fluctuating. What, yeah, I don't know what the number was, but it's up a lot. Yep in the course of the last hundred years. I've been in the investment business close to 30 years now. I hope to be in it for another 30 years. I think it'll be massively higher 30 years from now than it is today. And that's really the kind of time frame that I, that I think about. So I have no short-term predictions. Um, it's not an extraordinarily cheap market. It's not an extraordinarily expensive market, mm -hmm. but it's certainly one in which I think you can find productive investment ideas. Okay. And pushing you outside of your circle of competence a little bit more. Um, we've got these social... I thought we were talking about that when we talked about golf. Yeah. <laughs> this, this one, uh, social networks. Social networks, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Um, th these are companies that, that we see we're using all the time. They're on the, the lips of a lot of retail investors and, and, and everyday folks getting into the market. Um, do you have a, a view on the value of these, where they could be headed? Um, what's your thought on the businesses? Well, in general, well, we know the ones which have been spectacularly successful. Mm -hmm. um, there are others that have uh, flitted into view and are no longer with us, or certainly right. no longer um, in the, you know, held in the same esteem as what they might have been potentially. So uh, I recognize completely that some of these are going to be of, are, are and will continue to be of immense value, but, but it's not my field of expertise to be able to opine on them. Um, one of the things that I do think about and that I am responsible for and within my so-called competence is the things that we do own mm -hmm. and how are their businesses affected by the growing power of a, of a Google or, or Facebook. Okay, yeah. uh, so for instance, in the late 90s as an example, um, I tended not to own some of the, the dot-com companies that were very popular at the time. And I'd be criticized for not being um, sort of current with, with technology, and I always would say to people, 
actually, I own shares of the most successful technology company in the world. And people who knew me well would sort of look at me quite quizzically and say, what do you mean you don't own any of that? I said, yes, I do. I own Walmart. Because if you think about Walmart, it was their brilliant use of technology mm -hmm. as much as anything else that enabled them to scale the size of that business. Sure. So while you would not necessarily have Walmart fall off your lips as an example of what's a great technology company, they were great users mm -hmm. of technology. The Marriott, which we spoke of earlier, well, the reservation system, the pervasiveness of, you know, started out with 800 phone numbers and now uh, Marriott.com or the, the uh, Expedia's and Pricelines of which they would be a part of. Sure. Um, it's my responsibility and within my circle of competence to, to decide and to stay on top of whether I think they are effectively adapting to the new environment that they have to operate in. Okay. Uh, I would say in the past past few years, maybe past five or ten years, there's been an increased focus on behavioral investing, mm -hmm. the, the ways that our brain can get in the way of, of good investing results. For you, what are some of the most difficult biases that you have to that you have to face, and how do you deal with them? Um, great question. I hadn't thought about it in exactly those those phrases. Uh, where it really makes sense to me and where things clicked. I mean, the, the Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow book that mm -hmm. Daniel Kahneman wrote. Uh, so I, I try to think about where I have thought quickly <laughs> and instantly reacted to something and, and made the decision, you know, whether you want to call it the, the reptilian brain, the, the type one thinking, type two, I mean, all the language around those sorts of things. Um, where are you making simplifying assumptions and, and where are you not? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have a, a broad generic category to answer your question with, but I do try to stay cognizant personally mm -hmm. uh, of, of where I might have jumped to a conclusion and where I should slow down. And similarly, where sometimes jumping to a conclusion is very helpful, mm -hmm. and, and those kinds of decisions are more likely to be correct than not. Well, fortunately, I would imagine having stocks in your portfolio for, for 10 years plus helps avoid making split-second decisions. Well, um, let's put it this way. It helps split-second decisions to be more accurate than they used to be. Okay. So I think that's, and, and Charlie Munger talks about this quite a bit, you know, accumulated wisdom and having been in the business and studied companies and studied business and studied people and studied history for years and years and years and years and years, you ought to be better at it right. the, the longer you've been doing it and the older you get rather than... Like uh, the muscle memory of an athlete. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We, we actually we put a call out to uh, Motley Fool readers uh, to see if they had questions that, we, that, that they wanted us to bring to you, and I've got a couple of them that, uh, that we could potentially close with here. Uh, the first one is from Chris W., and his question was, does Markel Ventures look outside the U.S. for acquisitions, and if so, does the process, process change when looking internationally? We do. Um, the, the first several Markel Ventures acquisitions that we did uh, tended to be pretty close to home, some of which were right here in Richmond, right. uh, because it was um, a, a new activity for us, and we were stretching and expanding our circle of confidence. We thought it was quite important to make sure that we increased the odds right. of knowing what we were doing, uh, which was helped by the fact that we knew people in this community um, as, as we did our first couple of acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Since that time, and we're 10 years into the, the program now, we have indeed bought some non-US-based businesses. They have tended to be um, businesses that uh, the companies that we already operate were already in. 
Okay. So it wasn't that we got into a new business that was outside the U.S. and this was the first step in that world that we ever did. First company we bought in Markel Ventures was AMF Bakery Equipment. Mm -hmm. So we have some a, a decade's worth of experience in baking equipment, food supplies, and things of that nature. So some of the international deals we have done have been through AMF okay. and in the food world. Again, connected to that sugar chain. Right. Uh, <laughs> and circle of competence. Circle is of competence. Taking that, yeah. That's exactly right. Okay. We've also done some international deals in our Ellicott dredging operation. Um, and Ellicott, while it's headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland, actually does the vast majority of their sales outside the U.S. and has for a long time. Okay. So the, the people who run that business are experienced and skilled and proven winners at doing business all around the globe. Okay. Uh, so they really were leading uh, the transaction to buy the things that we've bought outside the U.S. Great. Um, and the second question I have here comes from uh, Andy S. And the question is, you get five companies excluding Markel to hold forever. Which companies and why? <laughs> <laughs> um, I hesitate to answer that only because that answer might change tomorrow. So Andy S., uh, you can look at our public filings and you can see what we own. You've mentioned some of the names. Sure. Uh, they are subject to change. So before we, we uh, memorialize something in a, in a, on, a, on a stone, Absolutely. Let's, uh, <laughs> let, let's defer to another question. We'll, we'll stick to the 13 Fs right. for, for right. that. Uh, well, Tom, I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. My great pleasure. That is our show for today, Fools. We will be back tomorrow with an interview that Motley Fool co-founder and CEO Tom Gardner did with Jack Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Group, uh, back in late 2013. So we'll see you then.